Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Impossible. Whenever I show my grandpa some new trick that my iPhone or computer can do, he'll shake his head and just say, Impossible. Yet what was once an impossibility to previous generations has now become possible. Sadly, I think we have more confidence in technology, science, and mankind's innovative abilities than we do in the power of Almighty God. Are your prayers and expectations aiming too low? What if we began living, praying, and believing as if we do, in fact, serve the God of the impossible? Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The impossible. I'm very fascinated with the word impossible, and I've been meditating upon it all week long. And I know it's a word that we all know, and there can't be anything fantastic about a message on it. And yet, to meditate on the fact that this is where God calls us. If it is impossible, it is his terrain. This is where he specializes. He specializes in that which is impossible for us. So, we could get a huge list of things that are very possible for us to do. And most of us think that Christianity falls into the category of that which is plausible and possible. And as a result, we haven't yet found Christianity. Christianity is absolutely impossible. You and I cannot do it. And you're like, well, what, what kind of hope is this, Eric? I just arrived at Ellerslie for nine weeks and it starts out with a kick in the gut that says I can't even do it. Well, you can't do it. You see, we're turning to the God of the impossible, and that's, that's what this message is going to focus on. The four sorts of faith. So I'm going to break this down. Let's imagine that all of us have come unto Jesus Christ, and we've believed. So when you believe, what sort of faith do you have? And I'm going to break that down into four tiers, four stratas of faith, if you will. And the first, which is sort of the introductory level, and these are serious believers. These are people that have come unto Jesus Christ and said, his cross work is mine, and without it, I have nothing. Okay, so I'm not just talking about someone who's floating near the edge. I'm talking about someone who's crossed the line. And they're saying, I'm with Jesus. The anxious hopeful. You know that when we first come unto the cross, we come unto Jesus Christ, and we believe We oftentimes don't understand the full dynamic, the full scope of what God wants to do in our life. And so things like fear and anxiety still linger. We don't recognize that we can have complete and utter confidence in our God to save us, not just from hell, but from the work of the devil in our life, from temptation, from everything that would sabotage our soul, we actually have that which we need. But most of us do not know that. Or maybe we know it intellectually, we don't know it where it counts. And as a result, I would describe us as the anxious hopeful. We hope it all turns out all right. We hope we can overcome. We hope that the next temptation doesn't bring us down. But we're a little anxious about the fact that it may not. That God may not come through for us because we're not exactly sure that his promises apply to us. We know that maybe the cross does, but we're not exactly sure if the rest of it does. The wistful optimist. I like that word, wistful. You see, there's a smile that begins to crease you know, your face. And you begin to catch the vision. That, Wait a minute. God has more than this. See, a lot of you arriving at Ellerslie... Uh, 
this might be a good way of describing you. The wistful optimist. I believe there's more. I believe that God intends for people to actually overcome and not just be under the thumb of Satan for the rest of their life. I believe, however, we'll call it the wistful optimist. You don't exactly know how to see that implemented into your life. You just believe it. And so as a result, you have the wry smile. It's creasing your face, but you're not exactly sure how this is going to work out, but you're a believer. You're a believer that God has started something and he's going to bring it to completion. The budding confidence. You're starting to get a little swagger. Wait a minute. I don't just believe God will do it. He is doing it. And so there actually is fruit that is coming forth from your life by the fact that you have stood and you have believed. What maybe everyone else in this generation has actually said, no, that's not for today. Yeah, maybe in the early church they actually could do that and they could actually walk in strength. They could walk and overcome sin. Oh, I don't know about that today. Well, you've proven it in your life. You're the budding confidence. You actually have a strength. You believe the word of God. When it says it, I'm going to start believing it. And you are. And God is increasing in your life. Isn't it an amazing thought to think that I'm going to give another level? Well, and that's what we could call the impossible. You see... Most of what I've described so far is what we esteem. But what I want us to do is blow the lid off. I want us to go heavenward in our thinking, in our living, in our praying. I want us to not have a ceiling in the way we're expecting Christianity to work in our life. I want us to go higher than that. And so this is another realm of faith. We'll call it the radiantly assured. Now, I don't know how many of you fall into the category of, oh, a mountain? Oh yeah, faith the size of a mustard seed could move that thing out of the way. So what were you saying your obstacle was? Well, I have a mountain in front of me. Well, what's the big deal? Just tell it to get out of the way. Who lives that way? Well, the radiantly assured. You don't just know God's word. You believe God's word. And get this, you believe every one of God's word. You believe it all. You believe it and you've taken it. And you, with little childlike wonder, believe it. And you believe the God of the impossible is going to do the impossible in our generation. Introducing the idea of impossible. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So just in the basic construct of the idea in Scripture, because this idea is thrown out, oh, I don't know what it is, about six different times, that with us, it can't be done. But with God, it can be done. That is the crux of the gospel, right there. With you, salvation is impossible. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you cannot do it. With man, it is impossible. With God, nothing shall be impossible. It is possible with God. So, impossible. It's an adjective. That's the way most of us would use it. Well, I'd say all of us that are correct in our grammar would use it that way. But it means not able to occur, exist, or be done. Now, I know you know that, but I'm building something here. So, I'm going to change it from an adjective. I know I'm bypassing a few rules of grammar in doing this. To a place, a location. 
Now, I'm doing this to make a point because there is an actual location in which the God of the impossible lives, but I would just like to call that place the impossible. It's as if we're on a journey to the impossible. It's like God's calling us to the impossible. You see, it helps us, I think, wrap our understanding around what God is calling us towards. And so I'm going to call it a place, a proper noun. It's called the impossible, a fresh look at the concept of impossible. So here's our proper noun, the impossible. Yeah, where are you going tonight? I'm going to the impossible. Yeah, where did you go this morning? Well, I hung out at the impossible. So if you got the idea, that's, that's what I'm trying to enunciate here. It's the place of God where that which is not able to occur, exist, or be done anywhere else is, in fact, accomplished. So where is it accomplished? Well, it's accomplished at the impossible. Well, what's that? What's the place of God? It's not just a place. It's a person. You see, where we are headed is a person. There's a person, and we could call him the impossible. It's sort of a funny strangulation of our terminology here. However, where are you called? You're not called to live and to die trying to do something that you can't. You are commissioned to live the impossible life. So do it. You're like, I, I can't. In your own pockets, you don't have the resource to do it. But you're still called to do it. So he says, look, I've made a way. I've made a way to the impossible. Well, who is that way? It's a person. It's not just a place. It's a person. A destination. It's very personable. His name is Jesus Christ. So the impossible, the territory of God. It's the place of power. No man or angel is fit to enter. It is the place of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. Air too pure for man to breathe. Fire too hot for man to bear. Light too bright for man to look upon. And yet, this is the place we have been called. Well, some of us are not exactly sure if we even want to go there. Didn't I tell you this is the place of God? Has anyone ever introduced you to God? God is fiery, holy, holy, holiness. Nothing can survive there that isn't like him. And that's where we're called? Well, that would, we would be incinerated. Well, yeah. It's a, ruling pla- it's a place of ruling responsibility, the place of heavenly work. This is where the job gets done, right here. It's the place, the, and the only place at that from which salvation can be worked. It's the place of the king, with the weight of the worlds pressing down upon it. The moral and ethical gravitational pressure upon this place is enough to turn a mountain of granite into dust in a mere blink of an eye. No man nor angel can be in this place. Only holy, holy, holiness can be in this place. It's the right hand of majesty, a place only one can sit. It's the seat of atonement, the throne of grace. But it's not the seat nor the throne that is the place, but the person who sits upon them that marks the place. We are invited, commissioned, commanded to come to this place, this person. But to come to this place called the impossible, must be as, we must be as God is. And that is impossible. The gospel simply states that a way has been made for us to enter this place of power. The impossible has been made accessible in and through the impossible work of God through Jesus Christ. The one who breathes this rarefied air of holiness, who is himself a flame of fire, and who dwells in light too bright for man to gaze upon, has made the impossible possible. There's, uh, by the way, the key to unlocking this entire message. Jesus has made the impossible possible by doing for us that which was impossible for us to possibly do. 
So here's our first Greek word. Look at the last, latter half of this as donatos. And then there's an ah sound in front of it. When you put the ah in front of a Greek word, it basically empties it. It's like the absence of that word. So this is the absence of denatos, okay? So I haven't given you denatos yet, but it, this means impossible, okay? Not able to be accomplished, lacking power without ability to perform. So now let's look at denatos. It looks like dynamite, doesn't it? Even its spelling. This is where the word dynamite even comes from. Dynamic. Dynamite. This is possible, able, powerful, mighty, strong. And so, denatos, if you, take, if you add an A to it, you end up taking something which is possible and making it impossible. You take something that is able and you make it so now it's no longer able. You take something that's powerful, and now you make it impotent. It has no power. You take something mighty, and you strip it of might, strong, and make it weak. And that's what adonatos is. With man, we are unable. It is impossible. We do not have the power, the might, or the strength. And that's the concept of adonatos. So this is the word that's a little more attractive to us, and that is, it's possible. And so it's sort of funny to say that God is the God of adonatos, but it's, it's a hard thing to explain. With man, it is adonatos. But with God, it is denatos. So Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And here's our switch out with our Greek words. With men this is adonatos, but with God all things are denatos. Okay? So with God, all things are possible. Or there is ability for all things, or there is might and there is strength to accomplish it in God. A short list of impossibles, okay? Just in case some of you haven't caught the idea that Christianity is impossible. Okay, now, if you're here for nine weeks at Ellerslie, you catch the drift of this pretty quick because we start on this and we start harping and hitting on this over and over and over again. This is what we're called to. And the Christian culture that many of us have come out of tries to diminish the standard to justify why we're not reaching it. However, what happens when you allow God's word to be God's word? It says, well, that's just what it is. That's what it says. That's what we're supposed to do. Oh, I can't do that. Bingo. It is impossible for you. But a short list of impossibles. Holy, holy, holiness. How you doing on the holiness department? Some of you can say, yeah, I've been working on that. Uh, so imagine that you got holiness down, which we don't. It's not just holiness, it's holy, holy, holiness. How you doing? True inward spotless purity. The slightest spot is enough to separate you from God for all eternity. Heavenly perfection, not perfection down here on earth. By the way, our earthly standard for perfection, we don't even come close to it. Let alone God's standard for perfection. Legal righteousness, everything that God is, we match legally with it. Everything that he's given in his law to declare, this is who I am, and to approach my throne, you must be in perfect agreement with righteousness, with my law. Legally speaking, if we were judged according to God's law, we would come out spotless throughout our entire life. Divine love, not the earthly, sappy kind of love, divine love that Jesus exhibited on the cross, you know, your 
struck on one cheek and you turn to them the other also. You're willing to die on a cross even for those that spit upon you, hate you, fashion a crown of thorns and stick it on your, on your, on your head. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Leaping for joy when falsely accused. If you've ever been falsely accused, the first thing that happens is your gut hollows out and your legs start knocking. You actually lose strength and God says, yeah, leap. We, we can't leap. I don't have what it takes to leap in a time like that. And it's not just leap, it's leap for joy. I mean, it's one thing to try and leap over something that's standing in front of you just to get over it. This is leaping for joy when you're falsely accused. Triumph over sin, darkness, the flesh, and the devil. You ever tried to beat them? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of impossible, isn't it? Raising dead people to life. Picking up mountains and throwing them into the midst of the sea. I could come up with a whole bunch more, multiplying fishes and loaves to feed thousands. I mean, how many things have we seen demonstrated in the word of God that is truly for us impossible? So this is just a short list of impossibles. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are denotos to him that believes. You know, that's an incredible statement. You know what that means? All things are possible. There is ability to accomplish it. There is might and there is strength for those who believe. If you believe, if you have faith, because the word believe and the word faith, faith is the noun Believe is the action, it's the verb. Most, I know, in the English language, we translate two different words. However, they're the same. And so, he that has faith, he that believes, has donatos for all things. Has the strength, the might, the ability, and everything becomes possible. Uh, you see, if you've grown up, and you're all mature now, there's probably a list of things in your mind that says, well, I mean, you, Eric, you can't just take that literally. Why not? You see, it's the little children in here that can take that literally. That's just what God says. We have baggage of experience of standing out and saying, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. And something didn't go the way we were intending. And as a result, it's sort of like our tire has gone flat. And so spiritually speaking, our faith has been punctured. And we're losing air. We're not gaining it. Well, it's high time we make a decision in our life, and that is that we choose to believe the words of God, whether or not our past experience matches it, because our experience isn't the word of God. We don't choose to believe our experience. We believe the word of God. And when you do, your life changes. That's the secret to accessing the impossible, is you believe. That is your job. You know what we're called? Believers. You know, we think it's like, Go to China-ers and preach the gospel-ers. But we are believer-ers. Did I just say that? (laughs) There's already an er in there. I don't need to add another one. We are believers. We just believe. That's what we're doing. The labor of the believer is to believe. So here's our word. Now you'll notice that same dynamite concept is thrown in here. This is... In a sense, the noun version of these things. And so now we have the substance of God's power. God's ability to do the impossible. And he says, you know what? I have something to share with you. You need this. Because we're like, well, God, I think I can take care of this. I think I can live Christianity on my own. I've got this figured out. He says, "Uh, no, you don't. Haven't you 
been convinced yet that you can't do this? He says, I have made a way for you to have that which you need to be able to do it. And we'll give a Greek word for that. Dunamis. It's the power of God, the power of a mighty host, the power to do what otherwise would be impossible. The heavenly stuff found only in the heavenly place, also known as grace. But then I could also say, also known as the Holy Spirit, also known as God himself. You see, grace, the Holy Spirit, that's God. It's God's working on our behalf. You see, he's saying, you can't do it, so let me do it. He's saying, you need the God of the impossible to come, to do this in you. Without that, you have no ability. It is impossible for you. But with him, all things are possible. So listen to this. This is the very beginning of Acts. Jesus has done his great work. He has ascended to the right hand of God. What is the first thing that uncorks? But the God of the impossible and his dunamis, his ability to do that which is impossible, is bequeathed to us, to the church of Jesus Christ. It says, but you shall receive dunamis. You shall receive the ability to do the impossible. You shall receive the ability, the strength, the might to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So here's my little expanded version of this. So where it's big, I just took out the word dunamis and stuck in a little sentence. But you shall receive the ability to perform the impossible. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Isn't it a fascinating question just to pause in your soul and say, so are you saying that I have been bequeathed and that I have access to the ability to perform the impossible? Yes. You have access to the throne room of grace. Didn't anyone ever tell you that? Didn't anyone ever communicate to you what the cross offers to us as to those that believe? You see, we are cut off. From God, All that God has to give, the life, the love, the mercies, all of it. So Jesus Christ came and he created a way. There's two trees, key, two trees in history. You have a tree way back in the Garden of Eden. Actually, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden. One was eaten of, the other one was ignored. But you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gives a command and he says, the day in which you eat of this, you will surely die. Do not eat. If you do, you die. There was a law given. And Adam and Eve became lawbreakers. They ate, and the day in which they did, they died. You eat, you die. It's called the law of sin and death. And there's another tree. Thousands of years later, to us, 2,000 years ago, but it's Calvary. And this tree, God says, you must eat. And unless you eat of the fruit of this tree, you have no life in you. Eat and live. Isn't that an amazing thing? There's two laws. Eat, you die, law of sin and death. You must eat to live. It's the law of believe and live. When you believe, you live. When you turn to God, you have God. You have all that he has to offer. It's available to you. Earth, that which is possible with man. Where do you live? I know it sounds funny. Let me ask a question. What's your position? 
have to work on that one. There's a little, a little quieter in the front. <laughs> See, your position is everything. And most of us, we're just stuck in this earth. And so as a result, we live in this earth. We need this earth. Without the, the resource of this earth, we have nothing. Our entire goal is to survive in this earth. And so if you are earth-bound, then you live a certain way. You live according to the laws of this earth. And according to the laws of this earth, that's impossible. You, know, you can't actually do that. Well, yeah, you can't actually do that if you live here. You can say, what are you saying, Eric, that some of us don't live here? Where do you, where do you think we are? You know, your body is here. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be all weird. Even though no matter what I say when I'm talking about Christianity, it comes across as weird. I'm just saying what God says. Okay, so earth. If we live on earth, we live according to the laws of earth, the ordinance of earth. And according to the ordinance of earth, certain things that I have described even thus far in this message are impossible. For you to bear witness of the divine nature, for you to showcase to the earth who God is in and through your life, you can't do that. Well, that is if you live according to the pattern of this earth. And so earth, that which is possible with man, the place most of us reside, from which most of us live and from which most of us pray. Where do you get your resource in life? Well, you know, Walmart down the street. Where do you find your strength and energy? Well, I mean, I get that from sleep and eating three, four meals a day, whatever our pattern is. Some of you are five or six, but the point is, our sustenance, our key sustenance comes from this life. And as a result, when we lean on that, we have certain limitations of what our life can do. I mean, you can only do so much. We only have 24 hours in a day. There's only so much a life can do. There's only so much you can do through your life. The capacity for you is very, very limited. And it, I, I have to admit, Human beings are rather extraordinary creations, and they can do a lot more than even they realize. But I'm not talking about what humans can do. I'm not just saying we need more Leonardo da Vinci's or Albert Einstein's. This is not a celebration called humanism. This is saying that humanism, even with its best foot forward, with the most polished of its works ever, the most moral, the most ethical, the most talented, the most cultivated, still falls who knows how many millions of miles short of that which is the base standard in heaven? We cannot do it. So earth, basically that which prohibits us from doing the impossible. When we live from here, when we find our confidence here, when this is what our end is, we have no life. Heaven. Well, heaven is that which is impossible with man and only possible with God. So here's the funny little twist on what I'm talking about. You need to choose where you live. You either live down here with the mentalities of this earth, or you live in heaven. You're like, well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, a way has been made for you to live in a new address. So this is the place God lives. He moves and has his being there, and this is the place true Christianity lives. You could say, in heaven? I will go to heaven when I die, but I can't live there now. Well, you don't understand how the gospel works then. And so I'll have to go through this. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. And where are those blessings? 
They're in heavenly places. With all spiritual blessings, and all these spiritual blessings are available, well, they're available in the heavenlies, in the place of God, in the impossible, in that one seat, in that one person, in Christ. So where is, where is all the spiritual blessings? Well, it's in heavenly places, in Christ. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. So where is Jesus then? Is Jesus down here? Jesus is seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God. So he's in that heavenly place and he's at the right hand of God and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What? What? Aren't you here in this room sitting in a seat? You see, faith gives you a passport. It transfers you from one address to another. Spiritually, you must live somewhere else other than this earth. You must enter into a new environment, a protected environment, a secure environment. You must enter into the impossible environment, the place no human should ever be allowed to come unless they are God. And yet God, when he was on that cross, you know what he did? He stitched clothing for us. It's called a robe of righteousness with his own life, his own blood. And he holds us out and out to us. And he says, unless you come to this and allow me to clothe you in it, you have no access. But when we do come to him, come to that work upon the cross and believe and say, without it, I have nothing. He clothes us in it and actually brings us into himself. We are in Christ. What's your position? When you are a believer, you are actually positionally in a person. I know it sounds strange. And that means where that person goes, you go. Just like if you were on a plane and it was headed to Europe and you got on it, guess what? You would go where the plane goes. Jesus is the plane. He works by a higher law, the law of believe and live. You see, there's a law of gravity that keeps all of us down on the ground. And we live according to the earth. But then when you enter into a plane, what does a plane do? It lives by a higher law. It's called the law of aerodynamics. The same is true with entering into Christ. By trusting that he is the one that is able to fly. Because some of us could shrug our shoulders and say, it's impossible to fly. Only birds can fly. That's like saying, only God can fly. And yet God has made a way. And the door is unlocked. There's a sticky note on the outside that says, hurry up and get on in. And then when we enter in and trust that this plane is able to do for us what we can't do for ourselves because we're under the law of gravity. It is impossible with us, but it is not impossible for this plane. And this plane is able to do something that otherwise would be considered impossible. What's your position? If you believe, you are in Christ. If you turn to the cross, you are in his clothing. His work has become your work. His destination, your destination. I was talking with Hudson a few years back, and one of the statements we were talking about was, what is required to get into heaven? And my question after I told him about the bright, hot righteousness of Almighty God, and we communicated about this, that there can be no speck of sin upon you, no selfishness, no flesh at all, was who can enter into heaven? And he said, no one. Isn't that a sad conclusion to have to come to, that no one can enter into heaven? God has revealed what's required, so just 
work it out. Why, why can't at least one of us be able to pull it off? None of us can. You see, the standard was given. It was given clearly. And even a little child recognizes that means none of us can go. None of us but <clears throat> one. You can say, well, who's that one? There is one man throughout all history that has actually fulfilled all righteousness, that has walked in holy, holy, holiness, that has truly been a picture of divine love. Why? He's God himself. And God himself came and became our high priest or our intercessor, our advocate, and opened himself up and says, step on in. He is the door. He is also our refuge. And when we believe, we enter in. And we are now clothed in him. He is called armor. He is a refuge. He is a strong tower. He is our salvation. You know that the enemy could not get through Jesus with lust, with fear, with greed, with pride. And guess where you now sit? When you are in Christ, all those enemies no longer can get to you. Because now you rest encompassed by God himself. So where is Jesus? He's in the heavenly place, at the right hand of the Father. So if you're in Christ, what it says here is, it's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In dunamis, in heavenly places, in the place of God, in the place of God power, in the place of God ability, in the place where impossibilities are made possible. When you're in Jesus Christ, one of the ways that we're going to say it today is that you're in that ability. You are in grace. You know, before, when you were in sin, you were under law. But now you are under grace. You've actually transferred, so no longer are you in a dunato, just, I forgot how to pronounce it now, the impossible, the inability, but now you are in the ability. You have entered into Christ, and therefore everything that is required you have access to. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in dunamis. Instead of heavenly places, I just called it in dunamis. In the place of strength. In the place of ability. He has brought you there. How did he bring you there? In Christ. You see, when you believed, you entered into the plane. And as a result, where Christ went, you went. And when he went to the right hand of the Father, guess what? He took you with him. So when you believe, you are actually secured in the holy of holies. You are brought into the throne room of grace. That's what we're talking. And in that throne room is dunamis, grace. It's the strength. It's the ability of God to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in dunamis. And, ra- and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in dunamis in Christ Jesus. So in that place, in that place where impossible things are possible, he's brought you there. So what was your excuse? Well, I can't do it. God says with man it's impossible. Yeah, but did you believe? Well, yeah. Well, if you believe, then he's brought you to where he is. And he is in the place where all things that are impossible are made possible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now, what I made big in this is in Christ. What's your position? In Christ. 
which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you know your position, then all that was impossible is no longer impossible. All that was impossible is now very possible. This is just called faith, by the way. Faith reasons from a heavenly vantage point as opposed to an earthly vantage point. Let's just be honest. If you're reasoning from an earthly vantage point, you don't tell a mountain to be picked up and thrown into the sea. That doesn't happen. That is against all laws of gravity and reason. It doesn't work. And so you can look at Scripture with an incredulity and say, yeah, right. By the way, women are not fashioned out of ribs either. Dead men remain dead. Seas do not part and nations don't walk across on dry land. When you blow a trumpet, walls don't collapse. When you have a mob of people and you only have a few loaves and fishes, they go hungry. When winds and waves are beating against a boat, you don't just stand up and say, peace, be still. That's ridiculous. We can't expect that to happen. Which realm do you reason from? Because in the realm that we have been called to, we live with a confidence that we are in Christ. We are in the God of the impossible. No more smallish faith. We're all beginners at this. We're walking around in a diaper spiritually, and as a result, we're like, one day I'd love to carry my dad's briefcase and get into those big wingtip shoes. Well, in Christ, you can do that now. He grows us up to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. The four sorts of faith. So remember that very beginning list I gave you of the anxious, hopeful, the wistful optimist, the budding confident, and the radiant something? Assured. Yes, thank you. I'm glad you guys are listening. (laughs) Mixing in the illustration of height into this. So the anxious, hopeful. The anxious hopeful, I don't want to diminish the fact that when you come to Christ, you get a different vantage point. You're living different than the world around you. You mean it. You believe the word of God. You just haven't seen it proven in this generation. As a result, you're a little wobbly need. And you don't fully know the scope of what's possible. The rest of the world's down here living according to their earthly mentalities, thinking that salvation is in their pockets, that they can do it. They don't need God, but you know you do. So I'm going to say the anxious hopeful is like standing on the top of the Empire State Building. Some of you are like, that's a pretty good vantage point. The wistful optimist. When you're a wistful optimist, you're like, you know what? God has more. This is like going from the Empire State Building to a jetliner in the clouds. And suddenly the Empire State Building vantage point you used to have looks pitiful. It's like, boy, I can see so much more. When I'm just standing on the Empire State Building, I only see what's in New York or in yeah, is that right? <laughs> Sears Towers in Chicago. See, I, this is scary. I should just stay away from tall buildings. So the wistful optimist is getting even a greater vantage point. Some of you could say, well, what else is there? I mean, that's about as high as you can go. Oh, we're just getting started. The budding confident, that's the shuttle deep in space. Could you imagine the vantage point you have and how much more you can see and what perspective you have? God created all of this. And yet there is still one vantage point that blows this away. Seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He is able. 
Nothing is impossible for him. You do not need just a fuel source to make a shuttle fly. You have God Almighty. Nothing hinges on you anymore. It all hinges on him. And you have that position. So now let's do the same list, the four sorts of faith, but let's mix in the illustration of proximity. So we're going to use the Old Testament temple. That was, let's use Solomon's temple. And so in Solomon's temple, there's basically three gradients of the outer courts, but then you have the inner court where only the consecrated priests could come, and then you have the Holy of Holies. So what is the anxious hopeful? Well, the anxious hopeful says that temple is where the presence of God dwells. My God has saved me. However, you're like across the city of Jerusalem, staring at it, looking at the Mount Moriah, and you're seeing the temple, and it's gleaming in its white limestone. You're impressed. You've made pilgrimage here. You love it. This is amazing. Look what God did. He's created a whole nation, a whole culture, which culminated in this, and God moved in. Amazing. It's a pretty good vantage point. Most of us have never seen it. And so, except for in, like in pictures and drawings, but like to actually witness the temple of God, that's what it's like when we first come to Jesus Christ. We're seeing it. So staring at the temple from a distance, convinced of the greatness of God, but not convinced that his greatness will be manifest in this hour. Two, the wistful optimist. Do you imagine what this would be like? To go from seeing it from a distance to actually getting up close and walking into the court of the Gentiles? It's like, whoa. I've only heard about this, but you are actually in the ancient temple. Remember the temple, when Jesus says, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, it took 46 years to build this. The temple of which he spoke was his body. We are entering into Jesus Christ, and we're getting closer. We're like, well, am I allowed here? Yes, <laughs> you are. Well, I mean, is it okay? Am I going to be struck down by lightning? No, come nearer, come nearer. And this is our growth as a Christian. We become the wistful optimist. I think he wants me nearer. I think he wants closer intimacy with me. I think I'm supposed to be closer to that presence. So entering the outer court and feeling the nearness to the Almighty. Can't you feel it? I mean, you're that close to the cloud of glory. Whoa. The budding confidence. Uh, why are we stopping here? I think there's more. Uh, only the consecrated priests are allowed in. Where are you going, Ludi? I'm told to boldly enter. Could you imagine going where no one has gone before? Literally entering into that inner court? Oh! I, but because of the blood of Jesus, I have access. I am consecrated by him. And therefore, I'm able to come near. Could you imagine seeing the veil and knowing it on the other side? There's the holy presence of God. Imagine what your prayer life would be like there. Whoa! Boldly entering the inner courts and feeling the awe of nearness. And then, uh, <clears throat> what's this guy up to? You see, this is Christianity. When Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in this earth? This is more, I think, of what he's talking about. The sort of faith that actually believes God to be God. Do you understand what I gave you? That my offering of blood has made a way for you to enter into the holy of holies. No, no one's allowed in there but one, and that's the high priest. The high priest has opened himself up and said, come on in. And now, yes, there is still only one allowed in, Jesus Christ. However, we are in him. 
And as a result, we have access into the almighty, perfectly holy, holy, holiness of God. Whoa, seated with him in the holy of holies, able to pray impossible prayers and see impossible answers to those impossible prayers. We are living in dunamis. So a change of spiritual address. I don't know if you've gone through a change of spiritual address in your life, but if you haven't sent out your notification to the heavenly post office, you need to do it. So all your mail is going to the right place. You must notify the heavenly postal service and all the powers of earth and hell. At Ellerslie, we call it a confession of faith. So this is your previous access, address, 666 Fool's Gold, self-effort, I-Y-O-S, in your own strength, is what that stands for. Earth. You're earthbound. You're limited to what earth has to offer you, and in earth there is no salvation. This is under judgment. And everything that finds its confidence here will come under the wrath of God. And as a result, you must change your address from earth to heaven. Two, 777 Pure Gold Boulevard, in Dunamis, Jesus Christ, heaven. What's your address? In Christ. That's your address. Judgment Day? So uh, what's your address? I'm in Christ. Oh, yeah, on earth I did a lot of good things? No, no. Wrong answer. (laughs) What's our address? What's our position? We are in Christ. And as a result, we can boldly enter to the place, the impossible, where there's such moral, ethical, gravitational weight that it can turn mountains of granite into dust and mere blinks of eyes. And we are brought into this because we are in him. We can live there. If you're not in him, you're crushed. But we are in him. So what it says in Colossians is, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. The word translated literally means like to move from one address to another. He has changed our location is what it's talking about. We were down here and we were under wrath in Adam. But now we have moved and he has translated us. He has moved us into the kingdom of his dear son. Live here now. You have a new address. And as a result, you have all of me available to you. When we pray, we need to pray from the place. So what's your location? If you're in Christ, when you pray, don't pray from earth. Don't pray from a lowly vantage point. I don't even want you praying from the top of the Empire State Building. I want you praying from the heavenly place. Whoa, I'm in the place where impossible things happen. That's right. Pray bigger prayers, the biggest prayers, the God-sized prayers. So when we pray, we pray from the place. We pray in the name. You know, that's what it means, in the name of Jesus. It's making a statement of our address. By the way, in case any powers of earth and hell are wondering... This prayer is being uttered in the name. In the place, you know, where impossible things take place. Amen. (laughs) We pray in dunamis. A full knowledge that the ability to accomplish what we're praying, we have in Christ. We pray in Christ. That's what we pray. What's your position? Well, don't leave it when you pray. Pray in Christ. When we live we live from the place. So it's not just when you're praying that you go into your you know, special spot in Christ. You live 
in that place. You live in Christ. You move in that place. That is where you live. So we live from the place. We live in the name. We live in dunamis. We live in Christ. When we believe, we believe from the place. We believe in the name. We believe in dunamis. We believe in Christ. He is able. He has done it. Yes, I know it's impossible for me, but it's not impossible for him. When we speak, we speak from the place. Any of you that are ever going to be teachers of the word of God, preachers of the word of God, counselors of the word of God, you better do your work in that place. This world doesn't need earthly philosophy. They don't need your wisdom. They need God. And so when you preach, preach from the place. Preach from your position. So when we speak, we speak from the place. We speak in the name. We speak in dunamis. We speak in Christ. And revival takes place. When we love, we love from the place. You ever tried to love from your own strength on earth? Your own ability? I don't know how many of us have done this, but maybe every single one of us, when we hear that we're supposed to love, what do we do? The first thing we do is we go to our own resource. We check our own pantry and go, okay, I'm going to whip up some love. And our love stinks. Our love is not God's love. It's not divine. So when you love, how do you love? You love from the place. You see, all the love that you need, you have access to in Christ. So when you love, you love from your position. And as a result, you have the dunamis. You have the ability to showcase a love that would otherwise be impossible. And the world stands back and goes, what is that? What's the church of Jesus Christ at work? He will know us by our love for one another. What kind of love is that? Well, that's the dunamis sort of love. Four ways to face Goliath with faith. Remember my four little gradients, my four tiers, my four uh, little sectors? Well, now I'm going to do it with David against Goliath. I love sticking David and Goliath somehow into every message. The anxious hopeful. Imagine David coming against Goliath. This is how most of us live out our Christianity. And we mean it. We genuinely are ready to fight that giant. We want to see him come down. But could you imagine, David? I just hope I get out of this alive. Perfectly reasonable, by the way. This is the greatest warrior in his generation. Twelve and a half foot tall, David. Just a little runty sort of character. No armor. No shield. No sword. All he's got is a little sling. Not looking good. I hope I just get out of this alive. I mean, that's actually a lot of faith right there. The fact that he even thinks it's possible he can get out alive is an amazing thought. The wistful optimist. Maybe God could get in a few good blows. The budding confident. Wait a minute. God is bigger than a giant. I think I can win this. Now, most of us would be like, whoa, whoa, David. Settle down there, buddy. Because don't you realize how big he is? That's earthly thinking. But heavenly thinking, this guy's getting a shuttle viewpoint on this. And he's like, wait a minute, that guy's actually not that big. Have you seen my God? But let's upgrade this. What did David walk into the valley of Elah with? The radiantly assured, in dunamis. It's impossible on this earth, I know. But in heaven, where I live, says David, it is possible with God. I will lop off his head and then feed his carcass to the birds of the air and I'll get him in an instant by pulling the old no armor, no sword, shepherd sprint. (laughs) You see, he actually came and as he stood there in the field, he prophesied. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And guess what? 
he was right. Are you the radiantly assured? You see, every single one of us has giants. Some of you have been knocked down. You keep getting up, knocked down, get up, knocked down, and yet you're still getting up. Good for you. But you're the anxious hopeful. And now you're coming to that place, it's like there has to be more than this. Is there power? Is there strength for someone to actually live this? Or do we just esteem it and when we get to heaven we turn all angelic? Is there hope? You have the little seed of it. But it's time that you grow it. You allow the grace of God to begin to enter your life and grow you up to realize there is no obstacle that you currently face that is too big for God. Four ways to face the Red Sea. All right, this is a bad situation, by the way. Okay, God has just worked 10 amazing miracles. The last one literally killing the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Egypt is not happy. They said, get out. But it seems like almost the moment that Pharaoh said, get out, he was rethinking it. And he marshals together a massive host, possibly the most powerful military force at that time in the world coming against a little ragtag band of Israelites. No weapons. They have nothing. They're brick makers. They have their women and children and their flocks. Uh, They're not in a good situation here. And they're backed up to the Red Sea. On both sides are mountains. And on this side is one angry military unit. They're dead. The Israelites actually get upset with Moses, and they're, they're talking about the fact that if we come back and we're humble, then maybe they won't take it out on us as their slaves anymore. Maybe they'll be easy on us. That's how the Israelites are talking at this exact moment. What does faith say? What does your faith say? So I'll be anxious, hopeful. Maybe the Egyptians won't go too hard on us and just let us integrate back into society like this <clears throat> never happened. The wistful optimist Maybe we could put up a pretty good fight and at least go down swinging. The budding confident. Wait a minute. God is bigger than the Egyptians. I think God has a purpose in this and that he intends to get glory in and through it. I think he might even want us to win this battle. And most of you could say, yeah, that's obvious. Well, no, it's obvious to you because it's written down in a book. <laughs> it should be just as obvious to you in your life circumstances right now. God is the God of the impossible. Stick your impossible circumstance right in front of your gaze right now. And I want you to measure yourself as if you're backed up to the Red Sea. I don't want to hear what earth's laws state. I want you to proclaim from the depths of your being what God's law states. What does he say about it? Because that's called faith. When you believe God's statement on the matter and not earth's. The radiantly assured backed up to the Red Sea, in dunamis, God is able. Nothing is impossible with him. I am in Christ, seated in heavenly places. God is certain to deliver us. He is certain to destroy our enemies. He could part the sea and have us walk across on dry land. That's one option. He could flatten the mountains so that we could walk out of here unmolested. And and he could pick us up and fly us out of here to safety. Those three things are exactly what Josephus said that Moses said at the Red Sea. He said it would be no better than madness to despair in the providence of our God now. God is going to deliver us, people. They picked up stones to throw them at Moses. God will do it. 
If he needs to flatten these mountains, he'll do it. If he needs to part the Red Sea so we walk across it on dry land, he'll do it. And if he needs to give us wings we all fly out of here, he'll do it. Is that the way you think? Is that your faith? As we're going through our impossibility, stick it in front of you. Stick your Goliath in front of you. And I want you to reason towards that Goliath with God mentality as opposed to earth mentality. Four ways to believe. The anxious hopeful. Well, uh, God is my savior. I prayed a prayer when I was five. I love him and I try to live a God-honoring life. I think that is enough. What else is there? That's the way most of us would actually live. To. What else is there? I've done everything I know to do. I'm trusting him. He is my salvation. I expect to go to heaven someday. The wistful opt- optimist. I think God intends Christianity to be something more than just getting to heaven. I think God wants to do something bigger with my life. The budding confident. Wait a minute. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all I could ask or think. I believe that I'm no longer a victim, but a victor. Watch out, enemy. I've been awakened to the power of my God. He is not just able, but he is desirous to answer my prayers. The radiantly assured, those that live in dunamis, those that know he loves to do the impossible. He will do the impossible. God, you can, you will, and you must alter the world. Show me what is impossible, and that is what I'm going after. It will certainly be done. Have you guys ever thought of making your life calling the impossible? If someone says, well, you can't do that. It's like, thank you. That's, I was just waiting for confirmation on it. <laughs> well, that would be impossible. Who said that? That's where I'm going. <laughs> if it's impossible, it's God's special territory. That is where he reveals his glory. Why? Because it couldn't have been done by man. If it's impossible, who did it? The God of the impossible. It has to be God. Four ways to pray. The anxious hopeful. God, I know you're busy, but I'm needing you to help me. I'm not sure if you're listening or even desiring to help me, but if you are, that would really make my day. (laughs) The wistful optimist. God actually hears my prayers. That's a major revelation to many of us that we just need. God is hearing it. He's not, we're not just speaking into some zone and they, you know, they get shuffled through in some committee in heaven sort of picks out the important ones and sets them before God. God hears my prayers. God answers prayers. He has been faithful in my life. If I pray, I do believe he will respond. Well, let's mature that even more though. The budding confident. Wait a minute. God is interested in every area of my life. He, he is simply asking me to ask him. If I pray, he moves in my life and in this earth. In fact, the more I pray, the more he moves. How much he will do in response to my prayers, I'm not sure, but I must start praying. The radiantly assured, those that reason from the fact that God is the God of the impossible and he has given us access to the dunamis, to that which is able to accomplish the impossible in Christ. I have absolute confidence in my heavenly position. If I pray a God-sized prayer, God will answer in God-sized fashion. He can and will alter nations, change the course of history, and bring revival to the church of Jesus Christ the world over. Four ways to live. The anxious hopeful. God, do you have a purpose for my life? The wistful optimist. God desires to use my hands as his hands. My heart is his heart. My feet is his feet. And my mouth is his mouth. He has chosen me to reveal his nature, his actions, and his love to this world. The budding confident. Wait a minute. 
God is living inside of me. The Almighty One has entered my life and will live out His life in and through me as I yield. Take me, O Lord, and showcase to the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of God in and through my life. The radiantly assured, living in the impossible God. The God who is able. My life will prove that God is the God of the impossible. Through impossible living, impossible loving, impossible giving, impossible praying, impossible believing, impossible parenting, an impossible marriage, and an impossible ministry. The world will be altered and witness that all things truly are possible to them that believe. Your life should be a testimony of the impossible. No, you can't actually do that. A Christian basically says, watch me. Or a better way of saying it is, watch him in and through me. We have entered into the sacred courts of the impossible. And our lives are meant to be a demonstration of something that is supernatural. Not natural, supernatural. Christianity is supposed to be supernatural. Anyone who gives an assessment of your life has to finally come to the conclusion that there's a God. There's no other way of explaining it. That is impossible with man. And it leads them to the gospel. But what was impossible with man is possible with God. Impossible thinking. Taking a page from David's playbook. I think I mentioned this last week, and I have a sermon earlier uh, in Ellerslie from it. But grab four more. I I gave a message called The Soldier's Life last week. I I really liked that message. I've been reviewing it. We were talking about needing to memorize my little uh, soldier lines. There's some good stuff in there. One of them was Grandpa Moe. Uh, which comes from the term, grab four more. David, when he approached, remember, this is impossible thinking. What David is doing here is so far beyond any reasonable, sane course of action. He rejects Saul's armor. He rejects Saul's sword and shield. He goes into the field of battle against the greatest warrior in his generation without any clothing of a military sort. All he has is a sling. So he reaches in the brook and grabs some stones. He grabs five. Why does he grab five? Well, we could say, well, in case he missed. I mean, then he could quickly reach in and grab another one. You know that David's mighties that followed him killed four brothers of Goliath. You know that at that day and at that battle, Goliath and his four brothers would have been there. Could you imagine David's thinking? It's not just, will I get out of this alive? God, somehow carry me through. I don't know how I got into this mess. He reaches in and he pulls a grandpa mo. He reaches into the brook and pulls out five stones. Hey, Goliath, I got one for you. And after I'm done with you, hey, guys, I got four more. Are we grabbing four more? Are we just trying to make it through the battle? You know, one of the things that has been lingering in my mind this week as I've been dealing with this message, our adoption out of Haiti for little recent Lily has, has been a very difficult process, and it has been over two years. And there have been moments in it where I have begun to escalate to the impossible praying. It's like, well, God, if there's a delay in this, then we're going to pray that all Haiti is revived and changed in and through this. I'm not going to just be throwing my prayers out just for two little kids. We're going to take on the whole nation. But as you persevere in prayer and as time passes and as difficulties come, it has a way of weighing down your faith to the point where I caught myself a few weeks ago praying a prayer like this. God, could you just, could you just somehow get them home? 
what happened to the growl? What happened to the prayers? They're diminished. They're defeated. Instead of coming at it and say, wait a minute, I'm seated in the heavenly place. Whoa. If I'm going to be praying, I need to pray from that vantage point. Are you grabbing four more? Are you pulling a grandpa Mo? Are you reaching in and saying, not just this obstacle, but every obstacle? I have dunamis in Christ Jesus. Ask, and it shall be given you. Well, that's a pretty clear statement. And in all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. You see, it said ask, and then it says ask in prayer. Now look at this one. Ask of God. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. You're not just asking. You're not just throwing up statements. You are asking the Father in the name of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, you are to ask. That is your job. You reach into the brook, and when you're asking, make sure you're asking in accordance with radiant assurance. You understand he is able. Where is your faith right now? The location of the ask. Where is the ask going to take place? And whatsoever you shall ask, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do. You make sure that you ask in the person of Christ. You ask from your position. It's a guarantee in Scripture that the Father Father will be glorified because he will do it. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. What's your position? Uh You could say, in the name. I am in his person. I am clothed in him, brought near to sit at the right hand of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. I am seated in heavenly places. So when you ask, how should you ask? So we're going to go through two ingredients that please God. When you ask, here's how you ask. When you come to that brook and you see that Goliath, here's how you pull out your stones. You pray, or I'm sorry, you ask in dunamis. You ask knowing that he's the God of the impossible. And so we'll call it in dunamis faith. Not just faith, but in dunamis faith. A type of faith that knows that he's the God of the impossible and he loves to do the impossible. So in dunamis faith that God is certain to answer, delights to answer, and is able to answer. And then two, and God-sized requests. If you're going to have an in dunamis faith, the type of faith is that God can do that. God will do that. Watch what God will do. Make sure your prayer requests are God-sized. Now what's funny is this whole week I was asking God for God-sized prayers. You can't just whip out a God-sized prayer. It's really funny. Because our attempts at God-sized prayers, when they come out of earth and thought, they just don't quite cut it. You need God to give you God-sized prayers. So one of the keys to praying is allowing God to pray through you. Because our prayers typically are ingrown. You ever seen or had an ingrown toenail? You see, there's nothing wrong with a toenail. Toenails do need to attach to your body, just like your prayers. They are going to be attached to your life. You're going to pray in accordance with what your life is needing, what is around you in your life. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you're only about your life, they become ingrown. And as a result, your toenail is now painful. We are supposed to pray God prayers. Not just ingrown prayers, but God prayers. Ones that make truly the nations of this earth alter and change. You know what Jesus says about the temple of God, which, by the way, is him, and then we become the body of Christ? We are the body of Christ. We're a house of prayer for all nations. Isn't that an incredible thought? We're supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. So let's make sure we have God-sized requests. 
audacious requests that make God smile and are befitting the heavenly place. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, this is my amplified version, in dunamis, knowing you are seated in Christ Jesus in heavenly places, confident that all things are under his feet, you shall receive. That's your position. When you believe, you believe that way. The pattern of the ask in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have a pattern that is given to us. I love this pattern, by the way. I get so excited about this pattern. But this is the pattern of the ask. This is truly the impossible. So the impossible request. Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the prophet that most of us know about in the Old Testament. I'm not saying you don't know about Elisha, but for whatever reason, he's smaller in many of our viewpoints than Elijah. I'm not sure why that is, unless it has to do with James 5, you know, because Elijah's mentioned that he prayed and the heavens were closed, and in the context of the fervent effectual prayer that availeth much, it's talking about Elijah's praying. And so oftentimes we diminish Elisha a little. However, what you'll see is that Elisha is not a small character. So Elijah is going to be taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. You know that Elijah never died an earthly death? Very strange. Sort of hard to even comment on. How how does that work? I don't know. However, Elijah was actually carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. By the way, I believe it. It's, It's revealed in the word of God, and I believe it. I know it sounds kooky. I believe it. So before he was, there was a forewarning. You know that all the prophets at that time knew that Elijah was going to be taken away? And so Elisha was sort of his mentor, his disciple. However, Elisha did not receive what he needed for the ministry of walking in Elijah's shoes and in his position or in his mantle until Elijah left. The same is true with the church of Jesus Christ. We are the second in the story. Jesus came, but until Jesus left, we did not receive the ability. We could call it the dunamis. The dunamis to do the impossible that Elijah did. Elijah called down fire from heaven. He raised dead people to life. I mean, this guy is extraordinary. He prays, and the heavens are sealed and do not rain for over three years. And then he prays again, and it rains. Wow! But the one that followed him is something special. You see, I had no denigration, no diminishment to Elijah. Wow. However, now we come to the Jordan River. The day has finally come when Elijah is going to part. So let's read our story. 2 Kings 2, and the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha. Now remember, Jericho is the first stronghold when the Israelites entered the land of promise, So it's right by the Jordan River. So they're right near the Jordan River at Jericho. And so the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha. He's the understudy. And said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? See, they've known it for quite some time that Elijah is going to leave. But they didn't know when. And now the day comes. And Elisha doesn't seem very happy about it. He says, and he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. Sort of like, could we not talk about that? Okay, I'm just not excited to lose my master. And I can understand how many of you, if, if you were a disciple, would be excited to have Jesus ascend. He's like, no, go into all the earth. Uh, could you just go with us? I, I think this would work out a lot better if you stayed around. However, it's imperative that he goes. 
It's imperative that he leaves something behind. And what he leaves behind is what you need. So, and he answered, yea, I know it, hold you your peace. And Elijah said unto him, said unto Elisha, Terry, I pray thee, hear, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. In other words, he's comforting him. Don't worry. Before I leave, you will know. And you will have everything you need. Because that seems to be the fear. It's like, hey, don't just disappear on me. I don't have the equipment. I don't have the ability. What I'm called to if I walk in your shoes is impossible, Elijah. You have something I need. So I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. And they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters. And they were divided hither and thither, this way and that. So that they too went over on dry ground. They literally walked across on dry ground across the Jordan River. Yeah, this is just what Elijah does. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, listen to this line, I made it big, ask what I shall do for thee. So before he leaves, he says, I have what you need, now ask. Isn't that an amazing thought? Jesus is saying to us, the word of God is saying to us, I have what you need to fill your commission. I know it's impossible. I know I'm leaving you an impossible weight. But ask. Ask the Father in my name. You will receive it. So what does Elisha ask for? Before I be taken away from you, just think about how we would ask in this situation. The mighty prophet Elijah is just about to disappear, and this guy has power. And he says, ask. Boy, my bank account has been very low lately. What I'm wondering is, could you just sort of supply me, even if it's a temp loan, just what I need to sort of make it through this month until I get my feet under me? Pathetic. That's not what we ask. We don't just look in a short-range view. We understand the grandeur of our calling. Don't you realize what you are called to do? You better ask in accordance with that. You're called to bear witness of God Almighty here on earth. What are you going to ask? Well... I think his request puts us all to shame. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. All right. Let's imagine that we have a hundred gradients of power, like of the Holy Spirit, that Elisha has access to. Out of all of those hundred points, how much does Elijah have? Are we actually going to say that he doesn't have a hundred? I mean, he's the most powerful man maybe that ever walked the earth up to that time. I mean, he has to have a lot. And then Elisha comes along and says, I want double. I don't even think it's possible to multiply that. You can't increase a hundred percent of something. You just are stuck. It's maxed out. What's amazing about this is he knew it wasn't maxed out. I want double. Who asks for that? Doesn't that even seem awkward and uncomfortable? You don't ask for double what Elijah had. I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, listen to Elijah's response. Thou hast asked a, <clears throat> a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. The key is that he sees him when he's taken. If Elisha sees him when he's taken, he knows he is received. Which is very important, by the way, at the ascension. They saw it. They saw Jesus ascend. It's key. It's mentioned in Scripture. It didn't just disappear one day. They saw it. You see, 
The church of Jesus Christ is the Elisha. We are the ones who witness the great prophet who ascends. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. It's funny how the Bible just sort of says it. Oh yeah, there's a chariot of fire. I say I have some horses of fire over here. And then, yeah, Elijah just went up into heaven. We're like, oh, could you give me a little more detail? And Elisha <clears throat> saw it. One of the smallest little phrases in the Bible and yet one of the most important. That's all it says. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. And he took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. So what I picture is this chariot going up in this mantle. What does Elijah do? He asks for a double portion. What was left behind? Some serious dunamis. And he picks it up. Throws it over his shoulders. The mantle of the prophet. And went back and stood by the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. And smote the waters. And said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of that dunamis? Where is the Lord God that does the impossible? That's who I believe in. That's who I need now. And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, this way and that. Whoa. Elisha has the same thing. And Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. We're not asking big enough. This is an incredible story because it's the bookends of Elisha. You have Elisha receiving his ministry and then Elisha dying. And what we have at the, his parting is a statement that basically we're not asking big enough. Now, Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. By the way, before I go into this, I do need to make one comment because it's extremely intriguing. And that is, in the biblical record, at the point when Elisha died, he had exactly double the miracles of Elijah, Elijah minus one. Isn't that awkward? It's like, a, God, did you miscount on this one? Exactly double the miracles of Elijah in the biblical record minus one. So Elijah, Elisha is laid in a tomb, and some guys are running around with a dead body. And they don't know where to throw it, so they throw it in Elisha's tomb. And what happens to the guy? Pops back to life. And God goes, and you were wondering? Double. <laughs> now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said. Now listen to what Joash, who by the way wasn't the best king. What he says to Elisha, he said, Oh my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Do you recognize that quote? It's only said one other time in scripture. And that's the time, that's what Elisha said when Elijah ascended. So Joash, who knows what Elisha received, is coming to the death wanting power. He wants dunamis. He wants strength. So he literally mimics the statement of Elisha. And Elisha said unto him, take bows and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hand upon the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. 
And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. And he smote three times and stayed or and stopped. Now let's just, we're going through this exercise. He's saying, do this, do this. We're obeying. We're doing what we need to do. It's like, okay, do I have the dunamis? Do I have what I need? And we get to this unique test. It's the equivalent of ask. What are you going to ask for? In the moment you are given the ask moment, what are you going to ask? Well, take these arrows and strike them to the ground. So you're like, okay. And so what does he do? He smites three times and then stops. Listen to Elisha. And the man of God was wroth with him. But what did he do wrong? Listen to this. And said, thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hadst consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but three times, and Elisha died, and they buried him. That's all it says. How many times are you striking in prayer? Do you have a vision of a big God? Do you understand your seated position in the heavenlies? Or are you living from an earthly mentality? Well, you can't actually do that. He can. Choosing the impossible. Prayer versus impossible prayer. Which one do you want? A lot of you pray, but are you willing to amp up the praying to God-sized praying? We could call it impossible prayer. Living versus impossible living. Loving versus impossible loving. Giving versus impossible giving. That'll make you gulp. Serving versus impossible serving. Teaching versus impossible teaching. Preaching versus impossible preaching. Parenting versus impossible parenting. Catching the vision? You see, we choose, we deliberately choose to grab four more stones. We deliberately choose to strike it over and over until Elisha actually stops our arm and says, that's enough. We said, all right then. God is able and we believe it. And God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. So no matter what's coming up in your brain, it's not going to quite do it. You need God to do the thinking for you. You need God to give the burdens of a changing world, to alter the course of history. Do you have the vision? Because the God that we serve is able to do it. We'll call him the God of the impossible. The impossible. Well, that's what it's called down here on earth. You see, in heaven, it's not impossible. In heaven, it's totally possible. So in heaven, the place is called all things are possible to them that believe. Oh yeah, welcome. You've just arrived at the place that in heaven is called all things are possible to them that believe. But when we look at it down here, it's impossible. It can't possibly happen. But where do you live? You see, down here it's called impossible. But up there, all things are possible. That's where we live. Endunamis. So what I did, because this is, I'm introducing you to another Greek word here. That's not it. This is my creative way of linking you from endunamis to endunamis. Now, when you stick an en in front of a Greek word, it turns it into a verb. So what we have is an action. So it's like encourage. Courage is a noun. And then if you stick an n in front of it, what do you have? You have giving courage to someone. So noble or nobility is something that is a concept, but then if you end noble or you stick an en in front of it, you're giving nobility to someone. 
Same with enjoy. Same with enlighten and envision. It transforms the power and ability of God to do the impossible into an action. When you stick the N in front of dunamis, you have strengthen. You have to give that which would enable someone to do the impossible. That's the word. So I'm just creatively introducing you to it. To empower with God power, to strengthen with God strength, to make impossibilities possible. Do you know this is a Greek word? It's just not that one up there. And here's where it's found, by the way. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. In other words, no matter what version of life I get today, I have something. What what does he have? What does Paul have? It says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I bet you've heard that before. But did you know what word that is? What's your position? You see, if you're in Christ, you know the secret of contentment, as Paul is talking about here. You have everything you need for every possible circumstance you could ever face. Because you have access to the dunamis. You have that which you need. And God sticks an EN in front of the dunamis and turns it into an action. And he bequeaths it to us. By the way, it's known as the Holy Spirit. It's known as grace. It's known as living by grace. Being transformed by it. However, here's our Greek word for it. In dunamao. To be endued with power, strength, and ability. To be made able. Isn't that the most beautiful word? There's the gospel. Endunamao. To be seated in the heavenly place in Christ. You have had it bequeathed to you. He has strengthened you in Christ. Is that true for you? If you're in Christ, then this is what he does for you. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which gives me dunamis. Is that true of you? You know, that's a pretty vibrant faith there. You know what Paul's saying? I can do it. Well, how, Paul? Well, I live in the heavenly place. I have access to the dunamis. You see, that dunamis enables me. He indunamises me. He sticks it in me. He carries me. He enables me. Our constant question. Here's how we're finishing. <clears throat> Does it require dunamis? Isn't that a funny question? So, how hard is it? How hard is the job? Well, it's impossible. Well, then that would require dunamis. All right, I'll do it. Does it require dunamis? If not, discard it and find a greater burden to carry, a greater challenge for your life. Come on, I don't want to live a life that I could do in my own strength. I want a calling. I want a commission that requires dunamis. Then God will get glory. C.T. Studd's famous quote, when someone says there is a lion in the way, the real Christian promptly, real Christian promptly replies, well, that's hardly enough inducement for me. I want a bear or two besides to make it worth my while to go. It's not just difficult. I need it to be impossible. Because God is the God of the impossible. That's where I'm headed. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. No matter how much you ask, no matter how lofty it gets, do you know that God outdoes it? Extraordinary thought. According to the power that worketh in us. And that's dunamis, by the way. Power.
Father, we belong to you. And Lord, we know we're supposed to strike with our arrows. But may you assign us the impossible prayers. May you tell us what to do. And may we pray accordingly. May we live accordingly. May we expect accordingly. You are able. You are the God of the impossible. With you, all things that are impossible for man are possible. And we thank you and cherish that reality. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.